me in 1 Kings chapter 17. Um, the text that we're going to read, and I'm going to read it to you in just a moment, is starting in verse 17. But just to give you some, some context about what we're about to look at. Chapter 17, verse 1 opens up with a bold statement from God, who's delivered, it's delivered, that message is delivered through a brash, up until this point, an unknown prophet. A man walks into the king's chambers, into his, into his throne room, and he says, There shall not be dew or rain these years according to my, but according to my word. He basically tells the king, hey guys, it's not going to rain. What he tells him. Now that kind of sounds like an odd thing to say, but you need to understand why it's even being said, because he's saying it to King Ahab. Ahab is the king. Ahab is a king, if you were to go back into chapter 16 and verse 33, it would tell you that King Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, to anger, than all the kings that were before him. If there was ever a king that got God upset, it was King Ahab. That's what it says in chapter 16, verse 33. Now, part of the problem that Ahab has was that he married a woman named Jezebel. Now, y'all know that name. If you don't even know who she is, you know the name Jezebel, because you might have been called it, or you might have called somebody named Jezebel before. <laughs> so you know what that name is. You know what it's about. But the reason it has that ring to it for most of us is because of this woman. Her name is Jezebel, and she was, can I just say it, she was a Jezebel. Uh, for, she was the original Jezebel. But she was a Phoenician woman. Um, she was from a region of that area of the world that's called the Zidon region. And that's only relevant mainly because it was the heart of Baal country. B-A-A-L. B with two A's in the middle and an L at the end. That's a god, an uh, uh, idol, a false god. And her land, Zidon, is where they, that's where those Canaanites in that area, they Baal was their god. They worshipped him, and they were out there exporting his worship everywhere. And what that meant was that she believed that the crops got their rain because Baal brought the rain. Now, is it starting to snap in or why maybe Elijah walks in and says it's not going to rain for a while? Because Baal, they, she believed that her god was the reason the crops got the rain and that life flourished on the planet. By the way, she also believed there was a rival god. This is important. She believed in a rival god called Mot, M-O-T, that would kill Baal from time to time, which is why the rain would stop from time to time. She thought, that's what their belief said, that, that Baal was killed by Mot, and that there would be drought and death because of Mot killing Baal. That's what she believed. This, and not just Jezebel, but all the people where she grew up, that's what they believed. And then her religion had a third deity called Anat, A-N-A-T, that Anat who would come in and resurrect Baal and restore the, 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 the rain and restore the crops. That's what this cycle of Baal bringing rain, Mot coming in killing Baal, and Anat coming in and resurrecting Baal so the rain would come back. She believed that that was all that would happen. This cycle would happen over and over. And she believed in Baal worship so much she had Ahab built her a personal Baal temple. You go back to chapter 16, you'll see that Ahab, she, he built her this, this personal space where she could worship her God. 
But that wasn't enough. What she was doing, Jezebel was doing, was she was pushing Ahab to say, Let's, let me worship Baal over here by myself, but I think everybody ought to worship Baal. So she was trying to get Ahab to take on Baal worship as the national religion of Israel. I don't know if you know this or not, but Israel is God's special people. So he didn't want them worshiping other gods of any sort. And the last thing he wanted was them to have as their national religion, this God who quote unquote brought the rains, got killed, got resurrected over and over and over. That's not what he wanted. So what God does is he sends a man. If you go to chapter 17, verse one, you'll see his name is Elisha the Tishbite. We use the word Elijah, we know that name, we know what that name is. But as his name was written in Hebrew, as his name would have been announced walking into Ahab's chambers, he would have been announced as this man, this prophet wants to talk to you, and his name is my God, is Yahweh. He would have been saying, I've got a message for your God, Baal. My God is Yahweh. My God is the one true God, and I've got, I got something he wants you to know. It's not going to rain. I'm making it stop. Not Baal, not Mott, not Annette, none of those people. That's me. My God is Yahweh. That's the God that's stopping the rain. That's the God who says it's three years, it's a specific moment in time that that rain is going to stop. And my God is asserting power and prerogative over life and death and flourishing and, and fertility. He is the one who's establishing that. He is telling Ahab's court, my God is the one who provides. Now, as Elijah makes that stunning statement, pretty much immediately, if you read it, verses 1 and 2, he says that to Ahab, and I'm imagining, I'm sure there may have been other things that are going on, but I'm imagining he says that to Ahab, and I can imagine if Matthew were the one being told to go do that. I would say that to Ahab, and I'd have all the bluster I could come up with, and immediately I would turn my heel and walk out, and in verse 2, he is going to the back country. He goes to the back country, and while he's back there, don't forget, don't forget, God said there's going to be rain. Remember that? What happens in the back country? God says, I'm going to provide for you. He gives him a little stream of water to drink out of. He brings ravens to bring meat to him, and he feeds him, and he takes care of him. But now, remember, there's no rain coming down. So I don't know if y'all know what happens when there's no rain. Those, those streams and those rivers... They kind of dry up a little bit. They go away, so that's what happens. But God's still not done providing for Elijah. He provides for him by telling him, I want you to go and uh, go over to this place where there's a widow. And you'll see about that in verse 7 and verse 8, where he says, I want you to go over there. Let me tell you where he's going. Hey, do you all remember where Jezebel's from? She's from Zidon, okay? Heart of Baal country. But he sends Elijah to Zarephath of Zidon. Let me put it in terms y'all understand. He's saying, remember Jezebel? She's from Ash County. Y'all always listen to me? She's from Ash County. Yeah, I'll get those names out of your head. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the real Jezebel here. She's from Ash County. But now I want you, Elijah, I want you to go to West Jefferson because there's somebody there I want you to see. Follow what she's what he's doing. He's taking her, taking Elijah back to the heart of Baal country to take care of him there with this widow woman. And in verses 9 through 16, which we won't read, but if you were to read that, you would see how he took care of Elijah. He took care of this widow woman. He took care of her son. He took care of them. 
And while the world around them is starving, while the world around them doesn't have enough to eat, doesn't have water to drink, can't take care of their crops, they don't have enough of anything, while the world around them is doing that, her and her son and Elijah, every day they go into the cupboard, they have plenty to eat, they have enough to take care of themselves because God provides for them. Now, that's where we are at this point in the story. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Are y'all with me so far? Okay, look at the verse 17. Oh, I'm get there. So show me one thing, Joe. Apologies. And it came to pass after these things. Everything I just told you about, this is about to happen. The son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And she took him out of, and he took him, took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a wall where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, what hast thou also wrought evil upon this widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? He stretched himself over the child, upon the child three times, and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come back into him again. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in thy mouth is truth. I want to ask you to pray with me, and I want to try to give you a thought from this passage. Lord, I need your help as I try to preach your word to your people. Please cover me with your Holy Spirit so that I'm sharing out through what, what, what you want us to see and hear. Uh, but Lord, more important than even covering me and using me, I pray that you'll take your words and find a home in the hearts of these men and women. They need to hear from you, God. You're the God who provides. And I pray that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. This is a terrible story, any way you look at it. It's gone from bad to worse. I mean, just think about this. Here's a woman who is a widow, so she's clearly lost her husband at some point. That on its own is probably a terrible circumstance. Some of you that have endured that, you know that that is not a, a happy occasion, maybe it's a sad occasion at best. And it might have been, been on what he had endured to die, and they have been very, very difficult. But then now she's endured a famine, she has gone through uh, what is probably something that probably some of us have never experienced, many of us have never experienced, the, the kind of uh, doing without that some of you might have, but I know I haven't experienced the doing without that she probably hasn't experienced. And now she's got, in verse 17 of the passage we just read, the one thing that she probably values above every other thing is her only son. Doesn't have her husband any longer. She's probably down to bare minimum of what it takes to survive. And even God has provided that to her. And now she's got the one person that matters to her more than this, anything in this world. He gets sick and he dies. And her response in verse 18 is probably the kind of response, if we're honest, that you and I would probably have to. God, what are you doing? Are you, are you trying to remind me? Yeah, I know I've not been perfect. Are you killing my son because of some sin I did in the past? 
She's got shame that she's probably carrying around. And, and by the way, who among us doesn't? By the way, don't, don't, don't raise your hand. Don't say, say amen. Because that's all of your, everybody in this room. And if you can't say that I agree with that, you think too highly of yourself, sir or ma'am. We all have sin and shame that we carry around. And when those things happen, I can say from my own testimony that I say the same thing. God, I'm sorry I did that back then, but please don't punish him or her or that situation because of what I did. That's what she's saying. That's what she's saying. And she's, she's guilty because maybe this is judgment for sin. Or she's frustrated. God, are you out to get me? And I've said the same thing. I admit to you, I've said the same thing. When bad things happen, I say, God, are you trying to get me? Are you, are you against me? What did, what did I do wrong, God? Why? Why are you doing this? So her response is not, I mean, you might want to jump on her. If you're super religious, you might want to jump on her. Oh, she shouldn't have said all that. We say this stuff. This is human response that she has. But I do want to say to you, and just say to her, that this death that is happening and her grief over this death, actually, I'm going to say something that sounds a little controversial, but I want you to listen to me, think with me. It actually shows the grace of God in her life. I want you to think about this and expand on this. It is only because, emphasizing your mind, because God has provided for her. It is only because God has brought her through so much. It is only because God has got her to this point that she has something to lose. Now, let's be honest. Her son dying, is losing her son, that's a big thing to lose. It's not a small thing, not an insignificant thing. But the fact that she has a son to lose says that there is a God who loves her and provides for her. Because when Elijah comes along, if you were to go back to verse 12, you will see when Elijah comes along, she is gathering up the very last meal that her and her son are going to enjoy together. And she literally says to Elijah, hey, I'm just getting this stuff together. I'm going to eat and die. She is fully expecting and was probably right to expect it that the life was not going to be much longer at that point. Yet because God brought the prophet along, because God provided for her family, her son has lived to verse 17, and she actually has a son to grieve over because of God's provision. It says that they ate many days. Go to verse 15. It says they did eat many days. Here she is going to eat one last time that God makes it so she can eat many days. Even Jesus brings this up in Luke chapter 4, in verse 25 and 26. He says that there were a lot of widows at that time. He was talking about this specific moment. He said, there were a lot of widows. How many women had lost their husband? How many other families had lost sons and daughters? But he says, but unto none of them was Elias or Elijah sent. Say Zarephath or Zarephath, a city in Zidon, unto a woman that was a widow. In other words, <laughs> Her neighbors were experiencing much of the same thing, and they didn't have sons to grieve over. They had been grieving on them a long time because they were gone a long time. Many of them didn't even have anything to grieve over because they themselves had died. But God, for one reason or another, I can't explain it. I'm not going to try to try to guess why, but God in his providence decided to show up in her life and help her. 
She's made it to verse 17 in chapter 17 because God provided. She's made it there because he sent Elijah. She's fussing at Elijah. She even calls him. She says, listen, what do I have to do? What is, why do I even have you in my life? She says in verse, in verse 18 there. She's like, why are you even here? Well, because God brought a prophet along, she's got something to dream over. Because God saved her, she's, there's guilt that she's carrying, but it's because God has saved her. I genuinely believe this is a woman who knew God, who understood God. And the reason she, the reason for that, that she's sitting there saying, maybe it's because of my sin, is because I believe that God gives his people an awareness of their own sin to see that they've got it. She didn't even know she had sin in her until God shows up and says, you know what, <laughs> that's wrong. I'm trying to get you to see that God has provided for her. He is the one who's got her to this point. Now, I want to be careful here to say that just because God provides, it doesn't mean grief's not there. Some of you know this. You've lost family members. You've lost maybe children. You've lost husbands or wives. You, you, you know that when you lose someone that matters to you, there's grief. I don't care how good it's been. In fact, the fact that it's been good makes that grief be that much, much, much harder because it's been so good. Though I'm just trying to get you to see it doesn't remove the grief, but I hope it brings our joy into focus a little bit. What I mean by that is when God provides, because God provides, it should show you he's on your side. He's been on your side all along, and he's on your side in this moment. Yes, you are grieving because you've lost something. Something hurts. Something is bad going on. But God provides, and everything he's done up to this moment shows that he's for you. Please do not take this moment that you are enduring some terrible misfortune, some terrible pain. Maybe it's physical illness. Maybe it is another grief of, of, of loss in your life or whatever that is. Don't take that as a sign that God has abandoned you. No, 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 no. God has provided you up to this point and everything you have, everything that you need, even that person that you love or even that health that you've enjoyed is all been provided by God. And now you're there at that moment. And don't let it turn you against God, but instead realize, yes, you're hurting, and yes, you're in pain. And go ahead and complain to the Lord. I want to encourage you, please, complain to God about your pain. Complain to God about what you've lost, what you've lost. But do it as the psalmist says in Psalm 142, verse 2, pour out your complaint before the Lord. Show him what is on your mind, what is worrying you. And when you do that, just be prepared to trust the answer that he gives. Go ahead and cry about the pain. Go ahead and cry about the trouble. I, I, at least not hear me condemn you for doing that. That is, not, I don't think the scripture condemns you for that. I think that the scripture understands, God understands our human condition. He understands the pain of our hearts more than anybody in this room understands. So he is not saying, don't cry, don't complain, don't pour it out, but instead cry about it. Just like Jesus did on the cross. You remember when Jesus was on the cross in Matthew 27? He's hanging on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What are you going to do? God, Jesus, what are you complaining about? What is he complaining about? He's in pain. He is suffering with the sins of the world on him. Do you see what I'm saying? The point is that our pain is real. And the crying that it produces in us is real. One day it's, he's going to wipe away those tears. One day he's going to take away that pain. One day he's going to take away all that suffering. One day he's going to take away death. That's one day. But right now, right now it hurts. 
that ability because he's brought you this far. He's brought you to this point. You need to, just like you did last year, five years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, you need to trust his provision just like you did then. You need to trust it now. Cry out to him and trust him to provide. It's exactly where this dear woman was. She has something to lose because God provides. Don't miss, ever miss that. If you are losing something because you are you are missing something now, it's only because God gave it to you to start with. And if he's good enough to give it to you, he's good enough to get you through what you're dealing with right now. But also don't miss, yes, she's got something to lose, but because God, Yahweh is providing, he is the provider, she also has everything in the world to gain. She will. You, you heard me read the story, but I want to remind you in verse 23, she's going to get her boy back. Her son dies. She's grieving over her lost son. She's going to get him back. Amen. The Lord returns. It's not in the scripture here, but this is just the way the world works. She's going to eventually lose that boy again. You do know that. She, she might die first. He might die. I don't know how it happened. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I just want you to know that she's going to eventually lose that boy again. It is a point that a man wants to die. Hebrews 9 27 tells us that's not to take anything away from God meeting a physical need that this woman had. She had a need for her son. She really wanted her son back and God provided it. And I do believe that God does answer prayers that way. We are praying in this church for people to be healed of sicknesses. We're praying for people to be healed of pain. We're praying for people for maybe even in, in, in relationships that are and broken apart, we're praying for people to be restored. We're praying for those things. And we believe, I believe, and I hope you believe with me, that God does answer those prayers. He does. I believe that we're praying for a man who is sick and who is who's in pain, that God can heal him and bring him back to us. I believe that we can, he can take away pains. I believe he can take away cancer. I believe he can do those things. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. But while God does meet physical needs, he also is ultimately providing something so much bigger than our physical needs. Amen. Because my life is not simply the 50, 60, 70, 80 years I live on this planet. That's not my life. That is the beginning. That is. It's important. I live it now. It's important to me. I want to enjoy it. I want to fill it full. I want to have a wonderful family that I love. I want to have health as long as the Lord provides it to me. But do understand that if I live 100 years on this earth, that is but the beginning of what he has promised to us. Amen. That is not all that we have. He is promising something so much bigger. There is spiritual death to be worried about. There is spiritual death. If you were to gain the whole world but lose your soul, if, yes, you were to give get 150 years, a ridiculous amount of time on this planet, and never have a health problem in this world, you might say, praise the Lord. But if you died and go to hell with no relationship with God, what good did it do? What good does it do? What I want you to see is, yes, he provides physical answers to prayer, and I thank the Lord for that. But he ultimately provides something so much bigger. Because back to this story for a second, don't forget who we're talking about here. This is a woman who is a pagan woman in a pagan land. 
She, God has no responsibility whatsoever to this woman. She is one of the Canaanites that God had actually told the children of Israel, wipe them out. She had no responsibility, no right to be there. She's from Jezebel's hometown. She's been raised from a little girl to worship a false god, a god that sparks the kind of anger in Yahweh, the one true God, that he said that he, he got so mad at Ahab, he said, I ain't never been so mad at any of the kings before, as mad as Ahab. It's because of this, what this woman would have been taught just was normal, the way that she was taught. And what she deserves is God's judgment. And I'm saying that with no, no pretense to say that I deserve something special from God, because I don't. But I want to be honest about the text here. Here's a woman that deserves God's judgment. But what does he provide to her? In verse 9, he presents the, um, the prophet of God to provide his presence with her. He doesn't have to do that. There was a million other widows in that land. He could have given, given anybody else, but he gave his presence, his prophet, in her family. In chapter, or verse 21, you'll see that he takes that young boy, and, and Elijah takes that young boy, and he stretches himself over that. And I don't know all the ins and outs about what he's doing there, but what I can only see is that her son is now covered by the man of God. That there is a covering over, an atonement, if you will, of this boy because of what God has done for her. He covers her son through the prophet. And in verses 20 and 21, what is the prophet doing? He's praying for her boy. He's interceding for her son. What I want you to see is here's a woman who deserves God's judgment but gets his grace. She deserves hell. But you'll see in verse 24, or rather yeah, the last verse, verse 24, she gets the truth of God affirmed for her. Her son's resurrection proves to her God's truth. God's real. God's God, when he says it, can be believed. It's foreshadowing. I do believe that these resurrections we're going to see in the Old Testament do a foreshadow that one resurrection that comes up in, in, in the Gospels of Jesus Christ who comes out of the grave. It foreshadows the fact that there would somebody come back to the, back to back to life and would, would provide life to all that had died before. I think that's what we're seeing in a foreshadowed sort of way. But she's seeing that if God would raise him from the dead, he must be true. She is seeing that God is better than those idols that she had been worshipped. God is stopping the rain that Baal couldn't bring. God is the one who's going to provide life that a knox could never bring back. God is going to do what none of her idols could ever do. And she's doing this to a woman who, again, does not forget, she was raised from the littlest of little bitty all the way up to probably the minute that she was introduced to Elijah, that Baal did this, and Anak did that, Bob did this, this is how it all works. She was on board with Jezebel all the way, probably pretty proud of her Jezebel queen going up and being the king's, uh, the king's wife. But now God, in his graciousness, he gives her life and life more abundantly. He gives her good gifts. He overcomes death for her. Do y'all see that he does that for you too? Please see that he does that for you too. He has said in John 10, 10 that he has come to give life and give it more abundantly. He says in James 1, 17 that all good gifts come from the Father of lights. 
He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last few verses, verse 57 and following, he says that he has overcome death, hell, and the grave. And it's only Jesus. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is only Jesus that gives the life that we need. So I'm asking you to trust his provision. Yes, you, he might not answer. Can I just go ahead and be honest with you? He might not answer that prayer for healing. You might still have that loneliness and that gap and that hole in your heart that you that's somebody that's missing for you. You might have that for the rest of your life. But he's given you something that's much better, much bigger, much more valuable. He's giving you an eternal life. He's giving you hope for tomorrow. He's given you a future to look forward to. He's forgiven your sins. He's offering you. God's able to provide. He has the power to do it. He's willing to do it. He wants to do it. He's done it time and time again, and he will do it again. And you can trust him. Your health problems, your family problems, you can trust him. The addictions that you might be dealing with, the sin, the shame you might be carrying around, you can, you can deal with that. The uncertainty of life, but there's so much uncertainty of life. The certainty of death, you can deal with that. You might be experiencing some unreasonable opposition. Maybe there's somebody that's against you and you don't understand why they're against you. God can handle that. You might be dealing with some hardship, that hardship that you didn't bring on. It wasn't a decision you made, it wasn't your fault. God can help you with that. You might be dealing with a mess that you made. Oh my goodness, how many messes I've made. But God can deal with that. He's the one who made life. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who restores life. He's the one who renews life. I'm asking you and inviting you to first trust his salvation. If you're here, I also talk to those. I'm, we have a camera right here that's taking pictures or video of this. If you're hearing this, I invite you. You are not saved. Jesus is not your Savior. He is offering salvation to you. I offer the same thing to anyone in this room who has never trusted Jesus Christ. Come to trust Him. Those of you that have trusted Him, don't be the untrusted Him. What you're enduring right now, you need to trust Him for that too. Once you come to Him, I invite you to stand. I'm going to stand down front here. I'm going to let Vanessa play. You'd like to come forward, you want to pray by yourself, or you want to come to the front of this church, you are always invited. By the way, you don't have to wait for an invitation. You're well, I want you to come anytime. While I'm preaching, while singing's going on, you come on. But I want to invite you to do that. If you want to do it down where you're standing, please come to the Lord. I'll stand down front here. If you want somebody to pray with you, you come down. You come to the Lord. Move among your people. Take the hearts of those that need help. Draw to you. Ask in Jesus' name.